Welcome to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. I'm Rachel Stewart. Berlin-based American conductor Roderick Cox is guest conducting the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra concerts on Friday, October 29th and Saturday, October 30th. He's the winner of the 2018 Sir George Schulte Conducting Award, and he has worked with orchestras and opera companies around the world, including Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, the BBC Philharmonic, the Bavarian uh, Radio Symphony Orchestra, Houston Grand Opera, and San Francisco Opera, just to name a few. He has also won a number of prizes, uh, too many to name here, uh, and many fellowships. He's the founder of the Roderick Cox Music Initiative, a project that provides scholarships for young musicians of color from underrepresented communities. And we're really glad, Roderick, to have you talking to us a little bit uh, today on Piedmont Arts. Well, let's just start with the program that you're going to be conducting this weekend. It's got Wagner Siegfried Idol, Mozart's Violin Concerto Number no. 5, and Brahms Serenade Number no. 2. And you were telling me just a few minutes ago that you chose this program and I'd be interested to know what goes into the thinking of a, a conductor or music director when they're choosing the program like this. Oh, uh, it is a, it is a exciting, but also um, it's, it's a very exciting process, but also a rather agonizing process. Cause you're just, you're hoping you're getting it right. I suppose it's like putting together a meal for a, 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 um, a dinner party, an important dinner party you're having. And, and a, in this case, a dinner party with an orchestra or a group of friends you've never um, hosted one for. And so this is my first meeting at the Charlotte Symphony. And so you're, you're trying to think about, you know, what, what the audience might like, what the orchestra hasn't played in a while, or what sort of music they might enjoy. And you're trying to also think about the music that really speaks to you, that you feel you have a, a strong connection for, and trying to make all those ingredients meet um, and, and um, before you put that program together. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I certainly did for this one as well. Um, the, just starting from the very end, uh, the Brahms Serenade number two is, is a very special piece for, uh, to me. It, it has a special place in my heart because it was the first piece I conducted in live performance when I decided I wanted to be uh, orchestral conductor. And, and so it goes all the way back to 2012 at Northwestern University. So I suppose this is a 10th year uh, anniversary for me uh, doing this piece or bringing it back to the concert hall. Um, but what's interesting about this piece, it, it represents Brahms at a very youthful part of his life, but it shows glimpses of the great genius orchestrator, symphonic writer that Brahms would become in, in this serenade, um, where he, it's quite innovative in a way because he doesn't use um, first or second violins. Um, and um, it, it, the violas are, are the main melodic voice along with the wind. So in a, in a, in a, in a time where people are deeming um, where people deemed um, the old genres of the serenade, the concerto, the symphony to be dead um, by compose, another composer on our program, Wagner, uh, <laughs> you have Brahms that 
reinvent this 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 old genre of serenade that was took to its greatest heights by by Mozart and composes uh, it's two beautiful and revolutionary serenades. That's number one and number two. Number two, um, written in fifty nine. Um, well, I hadn't realized it till you just said it. But congratulations for putting Wagner and Brahms on the same program. <laughs> They're probably both rolling in their graves, right? <laughs> they no, were such I, good friends. <laughs> they were not. You're right. They're not, they weren't good friends. They were kind of like the. The political rivals of our of our day, um, in terms of the uh, creating these two s- schools of thinking, uh, where friends had to choose sides between being on Wagner's side or Brahms's side in terms of the direction of classical music, but there have been many accounts as to, I think their their sort of secret but um, mutual respect for one another, and I do think they perhaps certainly admired one another, I think. And um, one one of the unique things I love to know about Brahms is that he was a collector of scores and he loved music from from Bach to Beethoven to Schubert, Schumann, and also Wagner. And he collected Wagner scores and went to see Wagner operas. And there was one time he had a score, of, a manuscript score of Wagner's that was given to him by a friend. And Wagner found out that he had it and asked for it back. And Brahms said, he <laughs> wrote to Wagner and said, how could you, how could you rob me of such a treasure? You know, and this sort of, <laughs> I don't know if he was being sarcastic, but no, I actually do think Brahms respected Wagner um, to, to a great uh to a great level, um, but Wagner finally got the score back and uh, only by sending him another manuscript signed score of another opera. So there was that, um, certainly those sort of funny moments between the two, but I certainly think uh, they influence one another and you hear elements of, Bra- uh, of Wagner and Brahms's music. And uh, I think back when um, around the third symphony when Wagner uh, died, uh, Brahms opened a rehearsal saying we lost a great master today. And so there was that respect for a colleague that Brahms showed. You think it went the other way very much? <laughs> you know, I think, <laughs> I think perhaps, this is my speculation, um, but I think they both knew their specific um, the ju- they knew that they were what they were really good at, and I think if if Wagner wrote many symphonies, he would be completely chastised because and because I think he knew he could not write a symphony at the level of Brahms, and I also feel in in Brahms's heart that if he wrote an opera, it would be stacked up against the great operas of, of Wagner that were very popular at the time. So, and Brahms was very conscious about his output. He often destroyed music or didn't let it live. Um, and so I think there was that, there was that respect of, you know, as long as you stay in your camp, as long as you stay in your lane, we can mutually exist. However, that didn't quite work very well for composer like Bruckner, who was a 
big fan of Wagner's, uh, but wrote symphonies. <laughs> so there are many accounts of Brahms really um, coming down on poor, poor Bruckner. Uh, <laughs> yes, <yeah>. poor Bruckner. <laughs> well, having this context and this knowledge that you have about about these composers and about these pieces, um, kind of the historical, obviously there's a whole musical um, part of it that you understand, but the historical mm -hmm. part of it, I'm just wondering how much does that play into how you interpret their music, if at all? It's, it's very important because when I'm looking at the notes on the page and I'm looking at the, the musical material, I, I, there's a process for my learning uh, that I have to remind myself to expand upon and go through specific steps of getting deeper into understanding the language of these specific composers. Because when we're looking at the notes on the page, these are, it's kind of our, I think of it as, you know, our superficial learning of, okay, we kind of know how it goes. It's an eighth note, it's a quarter note. Uh, this is the form, this is the key relationship, all that sort of structural and harmonic analysis, that is what it is. But then when we go deeper in understanding uh, the historical context, and so that we can also make a personal context, when we know that Wagner's Zidfri Idol was written um, as a birthday present to his 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 wife Cosima, um, and was played on the steps uh, of of the apartment when she woke in the morning. That gives this context to the to the type of intimacy um, that this music requires. Perhaps the the type of dynamic that we should begin with, the type of atmosphere of something that's very um, special and introverted between. Um, uh, that's being shared between two lovers, but it also gives me insight in, into perhaps the type of happiness uh, Wagner was experiencing during this time in his life. They both had been uh, in relationship before and, and Cosima um, married once before and for them to finally be together and to for him to write such a greeting for her really uh, is, is humbling for me and gives me a sense of um, uh, respect and but also gravity in terms of um, trying to get this this convey this message across to the modern day audience that this is just not any type of music this is special music written between um, a, a husband and a wife um, and so I think that context is important for me. It, it makes the music much more interesting and it helps me with my own personal investment in, in this music, but also gives me a sort of window into the lives of these, of these people at the time. They're just not composers, but they're they are people, they're artists, they are flawed individuals with, with heartbreak and, and loss and love and so forth. Um, it, it makes it so much more interesting uh, to me. You mentioned that you had to revise this program. Um, yes. Can you tell us what you did or why you had to revise it? Well, we, we had to revise the whole thing because of the, the COVID, um, the, the COVID regulations and the restrictions and the, uh, and so we, we, had to really um, chop it down to a smaller orchestra. And so at first I was doing 
Kodai Dance's Galanta and Brahms' Symphony Number no. Three, uh, and was going to do Coleridge Taylor's Violin Concerto, which is a, a rare, um, rarely performed piece, but beautiful piece. Um, the, um, and, and Benjamin Bauman plays it uh, gorgeously and is doing it um, some other places this year. And so I've worked with him before on the Higdon Violin Concerto, and was we we've talked briefly about championing this this new work and so unfortunately with in the middle of of a, of the season where he's traveling and i'm traveling and we need to come together and figure out what we could do together here in charlotte uh, you know we talked and he said you know these are the pieces uh, i have ready to go and mozart was one of them um and and so we went with that and um with an orchestra that is smaller, trying to choose repertoire um, that that fits with the narrative the narrative of the program. I thought I love the idea of, of Wagner and, and Brahms coupled with with the great giant Mozart in between. Perhaps it's a bit Germanic and Austrian program, but I think <laughs> <laughs> I but I also think their voices are so different, and there's and they were so very different people. Um, there's 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 something for people certainly to enjoy and and that's why I, even though these these pieces are hundreds of years old I always you know it's every time I open the score it's teaching me something new and so I I oftentimes feel like it's new music because even though the Brahms Serenade I've known for what 10 years or so I open the score each day and it reveals something new to me and I have new questions all the time about it and so I very much looking forward to exploring this piece again with uh, the Charlotte Symphony. Can you tell me a little bit about the Roderick Cox Music Initiative um, that provides scholarships for young musicians of color? That's what is it two years old three years old? Yeah, in 2000, uh, we started in 2019, and it's it's been uh, a tremendous success. I'm very uh, thankful for it, and thankful for thankful for all the supporters and friends who who have helped um, um, build this this initiative. It it was inspired by my childhood. Actually, um, I come from. Uh, Macon, Georgia, a single parent household where we didn't really have much money for formal classical music training. I, I was very, um, it was very beneficial that I was a part of a, a great public school um, music program when those things existed. <laughs> and uh, I was able to be in a band from elementary school uh, third grade, fourth grade, until I graduated. That was a huge benefit for me. But one thing we could not do, uh, could not do when I wanted to pursue music seriously in college was afford to buy my own instrument um, to study with in, in school. And, you know, it, it was a French horn and I think it was around uh, $2,500 or something or $3,000 for a horn. Um, and that is that is a lot of money still on uh, any family, uh, and especially a, a family where there's only one working parent. Um, and so what happened was, I was a member of the um, um, the Boys and Girls Club, and a, a mentor there connected me with the widow of Otis Redding, uh, Zelma Redding, and and 
Um, so Zelma, Re Zelma Redding, she agreed to buy me a, a French horn, no strings attached, so that I can study um, in college. And the only thing she asked is that I would send her my grades every semester to show that I'm you know, still focused on the music. But this completely opened up a new world of opportunity for me. I had my own instrument um, and my relationship with Zelma Redding and the Redding Foundation helped, um, helped me continue my dreams and, and go study conducting in the Czech Republic, study music in, in Oxford, England. It just really expand the horizons for, for a kid born in Macon, Georgia, now traveling the world and learning um, classical music at a, at a high level at important institutions. And I realized that after leaving Minnesota Orchestra, that it would be, it would be a travesty that if I'm not able to um, pass along those successes that have really benefited off the backs of other angels. Um, it's, it, for me, it's, it's not enough as classical musicians, at least for me, just to do concerts and feel that that's your service to, to community or to the next generation, but to inspire other young people and not just say that you can do this or study hard or practice hard, practice hard but you, let's be realistic. We, you, you, need some, some, um, you need some financial support. You need some, uh, a little foundation to help um, support those ambitions. And so that's what we try to do. I, I'm not a person that um, through this initiative tells you, okay, you need to go to this university or you need to study here or so forth. I work with two organizations to help find young, um, talented, ambitious students who want to study classical music. I ask, what do, what do they need? Uh, do they want to study? Do they need a new bow or, do, uh, or a, a, a a repair on their instrument, or do they wish to study at a, a wonderful summer program like Interlochen or something? And then how can we help that? Um, and so that's what this initiative has, has done. And we've been able to raise uh, thousands of, of dollars to help, I think about 17 or 18 uh, students so far. That's great. And, and what a great story about Zelma Redding helping yeah. you out, you know. So, so it is a new initiative, but already it's had success. And I imagine that you are always looking for people to support it. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, I also understand that there's a documentary being made uh, about your, yes. about your life, right? Or your career? I suppose so. Yes, it, it has been made. It is done. Um, it's called Conducting Life. Uh, this was a interesting project <laughs> at the time I, um, I was approached by um, filmmaker uh, Diane Moore um, who's a friend and um, who's a friend of mine as well in, in Aspen Colorado when I was a student there studying conducting at the Aspen Music Festival and she asked if she could do an interview and get some insight into I suppose my life as, a, as an artist and, and the steps you take to become a conductor. And I had never imagined that this would evolve into a multi-year project really where um, she followed my steps from, from 
from Aspen to Minnesota to Germany to Paris and many of the other places I've gone to conduct. And then just to shed light on this sort of elusive path of becoming a conductor and what that takes. Um, and my story, I suppose, is unique because of my, my, my background of, of coming from uh, Macon, Georgia to a non-classical music family. And so this, 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 I see this documentary as also a, a, a partner to the initiative where I'm not only just telling people that, okay, you can dream big and you can, and, and if you work hard, you can, you can prosper as a classical musician and be successful. But I also wanted to inspire young people through the documentary and also perhaps give them some um, practical or realistic financial tools that can also help them um, reach their goals. How would one watch the documentary? Well, at the moment, um, I believe there's a, uh, right now the documentary is in, in the stage of being submitted for film festivals. And so it is not available to the public yet, but uh, one can certainly keep, keep um, uh, updated on the documentary and the status of it by going to conductinglife.com. Okay. And Conducting Life is the, n- the name of the documentary. Well, Roderick Cox, I want to thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to talk to us here at, at WDAV and Piedmont Arts. And um, I don't think you say break a leg <laughs> to musicians, do you? Hoy, toy, toy, toy. Oh. <laughs> you say hoy, toy, toy. Toy, toy, toy. I suppose that's more coming in the opera world, but Italian for, you know, good luck or, or in German, ich wünsche dir viel Glück, lots of luck. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> well, good luck with the concerts. Okay. <laughs> and it's been, it's been great talking to you. I've been speaking to Roderick Cox, who is guest conducting the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra. October 29th and October 30th. And you've been listening to Piedmont Arts, made possible by Quo Vadis and Ortho Carolina. And I'm Rachel Stewart.